The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. This is A Call to Church Action, Part 26, our continuing study in the book of 2 Corinthians. Today our title, Steadfastness in Difficulty, and the text, 2 Corinthians 11, 16-33. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, amen. We continue our studies in the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 11. And our focus for attention this morning is that closing section of that 11th chapter, verses 16 through 33. God's call to church action. And we're now in the section entitled God's Call to Christian Leadership. And this is the second message under the credentials of the Christian leader. Last week we saw that the credentials of the Christian leader involve steadfastness in duty. This morning we see that that steadfastness in duty leads us inevitably to steadfastness in difficulty. To serve Christ with unswerving faithfulness is to be confronted with innumerable problems. Our Lord Jesus promised this before he went to heaven, having told his disciples that he would pour out the Holy Spirit upon them, give them a strengthener, an advocate, a comforter, he said these words, The word that I have said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended, stumbled. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you, will think that he doeth God's service. The words of our Savior to his disciples before he went to heaven. We can't be steadfast in duty without encountering difficulty. So the apostle in these verses tells us of the difficulty he experienced while serving his Lord and Master Jesus Christ. In fact, as one commentator puts it, this fragment of biography must ever be accounted as the most remarkable and unique in the world's history. No subsequent life of saint or martyr has ever surpassed St. Paul as sketched here in self-devotion. And no previous life even remotely resembles it. The figure of the Christian missionary was until then unknown. And any of you who've been doing your homework, as I expect you to do, in reading this epistle, and especially the chapter we have in mind, will have been profoundly stirred and moved by the lesson that was read to us this morning. In every sense of the word, therefore, we see here steadfastness and difficulty. 
And by difficulty, we mean first the professional difficulty of a Christian leader. I say again, verses 16 and 22, let no man think of me a fool, if otherwise, yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. Are they Hebrews? So am I. The apostle begins by apologizing for having to boast for his professional status. He has been forced to do this by the taunting opposers and critics who had invaded the church at Corinth. Apparently, this is the only language they understood. So Paul meets them at their own point of understanding and talks about his professional status. So we find the words boast or boasting occurring no less than 16 times in three chapters. Before he sets forth his credentials as the servant of the Lord, he reminds his readers, however, of five serious charges that he brings against those very so-called super-apostles who were nothing less than pseudo-apostles who had invaded the church in Corinth and were doing havoc amongst the believers there. Notice what he says about them. It's all found in verse 20. These religious imposters were lordly. Ye suffer if a man bring you into bondage. You see, instead of being in samples to the flock, they had become lords over God's heritage, thus enslaving the believers at Corinth. Look again, they were greedy. Ye suffer if a man devour you. Like the scribes and Pharisees of Christ's day, they devoured widows' houses. They went around soliciting money for themselves, making their own pockets fat. They were out for filthy lucre. They were more interested in what they gained than in what they gave. And Paul isn't slow to expose it. They were lordly. They were greedy. Notice again, they were crafty. Ye suffer if a man take of you. Look at that very carefully. Literally, this should read, if a man take you captive. The idea seems to be that of deceiving and then ensnaring others. And this is so characteristic of those who are not true apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice again, they were haughty. Ye suffer if a man exalt himself. Like Diotrephes mentioned in 3 John 9, these false teachers loved to have the preeminence in the church. And in this way, they sought for popularity and authority. But look again, if this weren't bad enough, they were downright nasty. Ye suffer if a man smite you on the face. Believe it or not, these false teachers must have brought their insolence with them from Jerusalem. For you remember, they struck the master in his face on his way to the cross. Later on, Luke tells us they did the same with the apostle Paul. Some commentators take the expression here as symbolizing any kind of humiliating treatment. For to strike a person on the face or on the mouth, on the mouth, in ancient times was the lowest form of attack. It represented disrespect and indignity at its lowest. And this is what these men were doing. 
If people wouldn't listen to them, they struck them over the face. And Paul's whole point in listing these charges is to expose the inconsistency of those gullible Corinthians for receiving these false apostles while they had hesitancy about the apostle who brought them in the first instance to a commitment to Jesus Christ and established the church at Corinth. But that's just like people are. How many thousands of godly pastors who plodded down through the years in their churches have discovered that even though they've ministered the best of the week to their congregation, some popular preacher comes in who's nothing more than a charlatan and the crowd is immediately gullibly captured by them. We need to watch that. Never, never be moved by sentimentalism. Never be carried away by mere eloquence. Never be impressed by mere personality parade. The test of every true servant of God is the anointing of the Holy Ghost upon him, the sense of God's presence that he brings, and the exposition, the exposition of the truth of God in all its verity and authority. Having then exposed these false teachers, he proceeds to state what, what, what we might term as the professional credentials of a true Christian leader. Look at them with me, will you please? Verse 22. Here are credentials which are cultural. Are they Hebrews? He asks. They claim to be Hebrews, are they? Are they really? So am I. These false teachers boasted of their proud ancestry. By using the term Hebrews, they were drawing to the attention of the church at Corinth their own upbringing, training, and refinement. They were implying that they could speak Aramaic and read the Old Testament scriptures and prophets in the original language. Paul's answer to this, however, was that he was also a Hebrew. Indeed, in one place, he calls himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. On another occasion, he could say in Acts 22, 3, I am verily a man who am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of our fathers. Upbringing, training, and refinement are still issues to be grappled with in this our day. Thank God for those who by reason of their upbringing and congenial circumstances had been given such cultural training as this. But whatever a person's background, Christian leadership demands credentials which are cultural. Let's never forget it. And there is nothing more edifying and refining in the whole area of cultural preparation than the transforming power of the Word of God. And I want to say it, and I want to say it from the depths of my heart, the most cultured person in our country today should be a Christian. And what hurts me deep in my soul is when I see Christian people behaving at a lower level than those who are even unregenerate. The fine graces of courtesy and culture and speech and knowledge should be characteristic of the Christian. Why? Because there's nothing more sanctifying and refining 
and edifying than the application of the word of God. And when I find a Christian who's crude, I know he isn't living in the word or by the power of the spirit. There's nothing wonderful about being crude. It's an evidence of insecurity, bad training, and certainly a non-application of the mighty sanctifying word of God. I'm sure Paul had this in mind when he said to young Timothy, preparing him for his task at the Ephesian church, study, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And again, that glorious word, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction or discipline in the right ways of living, that the man of God may be perfect, mature, cultured, refined, truly furnished unto all good works. There are credentials which are cultural. But look again at verse 22. Are they Israelites? So am I. These words suggest another insinuation. Paul's opponents whispered doubts as to whether he had any right to call himself an Israelite. Indeed, Professor, pa Professor Plumtree tells a story that was being circulated at that very time in which it was suggested, insinuated, that Paul was nothing more than the grandson of a proselyte upon whom there rested a religious stigma. According to a Jewish proverb, this stigma was not effaced for 24 generations. In other words, his personal credentials were being seriously questioned. But once again, Paul declares, are they Israelites? So am I. Even in one of his later epistles he had to defend this point. He could say, if any other man thinketh that he have whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. It might be relevant and interesting to recall at this point that when our Lord Jesus Christ acknowledged Nathanael, you remember, he said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. Apparently to be known as an Israelite was tantamount to being acknowledged as a man of personal integrity and sincerity. Paul reminds us in his letter to the Romans that Israelites were people to whom pertained the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers and of whom concerning the flesh Christ came who is blessed forevermore. If there is anything people question in Christian leadership it is that of personal credentials. Sometimes they may it's quite possible, I repeat, sometimes they may overlook educational deficiencies. But no one will ever overlook lack of integrity and sincerity. To qualify as a leader, a person is to be free indeed from all those things that cast suspicion upon the character. To be an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile the true Israel of God. 
We're looking for leaders today across our land, and not least in our churches. How do you measure up, my friend, in the Sunday school, on the deacon board, elder board, missions board, or it may be in that office of yours, in that place of business. Is there that cultural credential, that personal credential about that life of yours? But look again at verse 22. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. There are credentials which are spiritual. God had promised that in Abraham all seed should be blessed throughout the world. That as the seed came out of Abraham, his seed should multiply and bless a world. It was to Abraham that God promised a land and a purpose, and the great purpose of, was a redemptive one, of course. It was through the seed of Abraham that the Lord Jesus Christ eventually came to be the Savior of the world. And writing to the Galatians, Paul interprets this. He says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, and if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So once more we see how Paul counters the charges of his opponents and claims to be the very seed of Abraham, not only in the physical sense, but especially in the spiritual sense. As far as he was concerned, this constituted his spiritual credentials. Now of all the credentials we must have as Christian leaders, this third category is absolutely indispensable. Until we know what it is to be friends of God, as Abraham was, we can never be the fathers of the faithful. Only those who know what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit can manifest the seed, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control. As in Paul's day, so in our day, Christian leaders can expect their credentials to be questioned. In such instances, it's only imperative, and I repeat, imperative, that a servant of the Lord should be able to say why he is and who he is, the person that God has called him to be. It is no new phenomenon to have imposters and false teachers invading our churches all over the land. And it's right and proper that a godly, spirit-filled congregation should investigate those credentials and make sure if they really stand up to the test of Scripture and of the Holy Ghost. There must be cultural, personal, and spiritual authentication of our credentials. Having dealt with a professional difficulty, Paul now moves on to another one. And here, our hearts are humbled and our spirits chastened. Yes, Paul's answered the matter of the professional difficulty. He's steadfast and takes his stand where God has put him. Whatever he was culturally, personally or spiritually, he owned to God. And he answers his opponents. But now come to something which every one of us will face sooner or later, certainly not to the same extent as this man, because I believe what this man went through is unique. 
but it's what we're calling the vocational difficulty of the servant of the Lord, the vocational difficulty of Christian leadership. Look at verses 24 through 29. Are they ministers of Christ? Are they really the servants of Christ? I speak as a fool, I more. He said, why should I have to boast as a fool? Don't they see it? Don't they see the marks all over my body? But still, if you need it, I'll speak it. If they're servants of Christ, I more, and I'll tell you why. And to read these verses that follow is to be profoundly stirred and deeply humbled. Paul is claiming to be a servant of Jesus Christ here. Why? Because of what he suffered for his Lord and Master. With a memory quickened by the Holy Spirit and a throb of emotion that vibrates in every word, Paul talks here about the outward perils of serving Christ and then the inward trials of serving Christ. To him, this constituted the twofold difficulty of serving the Lord Jesus Christ, the vocational difficulty. Let's look at the outward perils. Here I want you to keep your eye on the scriptures because I'm just going to give you a verse-by-verse exposition briefly by way of comment on some of these amazing things that Paul calls his outward perils of serving Christ. Verse 23 again, are they ministers of Christ? In another place, of course, Paul could say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than all the apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. Now he starts off in stripes above measure, verse 23. As we shall see in verse 24, this was literal corporal punishment. And beloved friends here this morning and fellow members, there is such a thing as physical suffering for the name and the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. And some of us have been hearing news from Vietnam recently about that. Some of us have heard news even more recently of Christians who are suffering in Angola and in Congo and in Nigeria. Suffering physical punishment for the sake and the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 23, in prisons more frequent. St. Clement of Rome says that Paul was imprisoned seven times. The only imprisonment up to this date was in Philippi, of course, recorded for us in Acts 16.23. Later, as you remember, he was jailed in Jerusalem, Caesarea, and twice over in Rome. Indeed, he could prophesy concerning himself. You remember that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. Look again, verse 23, in deaths oft. Here the apostle alludes to the incessant opposition, peril, and anguish which came upon him daily, so that he cried, I die daily. Every day seemed to be a death to him. Of the Jews, I received five times 40 stripes save one, he says. It is interesting to observe that none of these Jewish scourgings is mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles, not one of them. In fact, this verse and most of this paragraph are a striking example of the incompleteness of Dr. Luke's story about the life of Paul. And I have a feeling that 
Paul wouldn't let him, just wouldn't let him tell what he had suffered. But he was scourged. Why? Because he says so. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this scourging was limited to 40 strokes. To prevent going beyond this, it was customary to stop at 39 so as to avoid a miscount. If you study Deuteronomy 25, 1 to 3, you'll see that. So severe was this form of beating and punishment that very, very seldom did a man survive. He would have to have a very strong constitution like our blessed Lord himself in order to sustain and survive 39 strokes with thongs, pieces of bone or metal attached at the end until the very skin was torn and flesh torn from the ribs. He says, thrice was I beaten with rods, verse 25. This was the Roman punishment which Paul endured. On one occasion, he had this administered in one of his missionary trips, and it's recorded for us in Acts 16, 23, and immediately after that beating with rods, Bleeding and torn, he was thrust into the innermost dungeon. The other two occasions are not mentioned apart from the reference here. Now a Roman citizen could claim immunity from this. He had a right to say, you can't touch me with a rod. I am free born. But it's on record that in many of the providences, this was overlooked and disallowed. So he was beaten with rods. Look again, once I was stoned. This incident, of course, is told in Acts 24 where Paul was stoned in Lystra and left as dead. An incident that undoubtedly we will be looking into next week in the passage that follows. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep. Once again, there is no record of these in the Acts of the Apostles, but during his travels, Paul tells us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he had experienced the horror of shipwreck. And what he's talking about now, of course, is something in the past. He was yet to have a shipwreck, as you remember. But not only a shipwreck, for 24 hours, he was exposed to the elements as he drifted upon the bosom of a mighty sea. In those days, men regarded an ocean voyage as a reckless gamble between life and death. But Paul had a vision for souls, and he had to reach them. And even though it meant facing death, he went through the seas to preach the gospel. And then look at verse 26. In journeyings often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils amongst false brethren. With dramatic and incisive phrasing, Paul speaks of eight perils right here. Look at them. Swollen rivers, murderous robbers, hostile Jews, threatening pagans, wicked cities, lonely deserts, stormy seas, heretical brethren. The vocational difficulty of a man of God. Then he goes on to say, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, 
Here the reference is to toil and travail, spells of sleepiness and sleeplessness. Both thoughts are here. Hungerings and thirstings, fastings and discipline, coldness and nakedness through constant exposure and lack of proper clothing. What a list. I say, what a list. And yet how we Christians complain about our paltry troubles and problems. As Strachan comments, so many of these experiences are unrecorded, so it must be assumed that Paul often suffered these alone. And then he adds this glorious little bit I wanted to quote to you. But Paul wears these pains like decorations. But with the outward perils of serving Christ, he tells us of the inward trials of serving Christ. And here is a verse that I'm dimly beginning to understand, but I wonder how many of you here in this congregation really understand it. Look at it very carefully. Don't slip it over. Are they ministers of Christ, he asks. I more, beside those things that are without outward perils, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? As if Paul hasn't reached the climax of his difficulty, he ventures to tell us of something which cost him even more pain and anxiety. He refers to it as the care of all the churches. Now, commentators are not agreed as to the exact meaning of the phrase, that which cometh upon me. Some interpret this as the attackers who fell upon those churches to destroy the great work that he had done throughout Asia Minor. But the general meaning, however, is quite clear. Paul experienced a pastoral anxiety from which he was never free, not for a single day. Morning, noon, and night, this weighed upon him. This deep sense of concern for those he had led to Jesus Christ. He was so identified with his converts in the ministry of the word and of the spirit and of prayer that weakness in the church was immediately felt in his own soul. He sensed it. When anybody was stumbled, he burned with indignation as did his Lord before him. Constantly this weight was upon this man of God this servant of Jehovah. No one has been an evangelist, a teacher, or a pastor without knowing something about this. And I might put it the other way. Without being an evangelist, a teacher, and a real pastor, you can't claim to have understood what Paul means by this. The only comparison which can be made is that of a deep concern of responsible parents for the well-being of their children in a home that is threatened by imminent disaster. And if you can somehow analyze the yearnings of a mother, the heartache of a father who sees a home going to pieces, who sees his children being destroyed, then you know something of that anxiety which pressed upon the apostle. He calls them his inward trials. So we have seen what steadfastness involves in relation to vocational difficulty. 
No one can be a true Christian leader without experiencing outward perils, inward trials. You can understand how I feel when some folk come to me after preaching my heart out in the gospel and saying I'd be a Christian, but you know this Christian business is rather sissy and soft. I want something that's manly. I want something that's going to call from me all that it takes. I want you, my friend, whoever you are in the audience, here or across radio, to show me one single instance in the whole gamut of history that reveals the kind of punishment a man went through to preach Jesus Christ, like Paul tells us here. There is nothing in history, says Dean Farrar, to equal this. The fact of the matter is, this is why we haven't missionaries. This is why women are in the ascendancy five to one man on the field today. This is why we haven't men responding to the call of Jesus Christ to serve him overseas in these desperate days in which we live. Why? Because we haven't men who can stand up to this. This is why we've got the anemic weakness the pathetic, revolting weakness in Christian circles in our churches today. No steadfastness, no standing true, vacillating with the next man who comes along. Paul is speaking here on how to be a servant of God, how to be a leader. Steadfastness in difficulty. Professional difficulty, vocational difficulty. But as if he hasn't gone enough, he concludes with something which to me is absolutely precious he hasn't finished look at it he brings us to another matter here I'm calling it the exceptional difficulty of a Christian leader the exceptional difficulty of Christian leadership if I miss if I must needs glory he says if I must needs glory I will glory in the things which concern mine infirmities and then down at the very bottom of the chapter there, through a window in a basket, I was let down by the wall and escaped. Why has Paul mentioned that? Has it ever occurred to you? Many scholars believe that Paul was interrupted at this point, so never concluded what he was about to share with his readers. Be that as it may, I feel sufficient has been left us by the Holy Spirit here to give us a closing climax to this amazing chapter. Paul starts by saying that if he's going to glory at all, then he's going to glory in his infirmities. And then to ensure the accuracy and solemnity of what he's about to add, he says in that next verse, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. God, Witness to the fact that I now speak the truth about this exceptional difficulty I've had to face in my ministry. Then following this, he recounts a miraculous escape which he experienced at the very outset of his ministry. Most of you are aware of it. You remember at the time he was in the city of Damascus. The Jews who sought his life requ requested the governor and Aretas that... Soldiers should be put at every exit to the great city to trap the apostle. 
But because of the clear thinking and prompt action of his friends, Paul was enabled to escape through a window on a house on that great wall in a little basket. Now, for some reason, Paul regarded this episode as the exceptional difficulty that he'd ever had to face in the ministry. Now, on the surface, this is hard to believe, especially in the light of the perils and trials which the apostle has already recited and we've dealt with this morning. But on closer examination, there is an underlying lesson here in this story which we mustn't miss. And to me, this is the climax of all I wanted to say this morning. It seems to me that Paul is speaking here of three things which constitute this exceptional difficulty. First, I'm calling it the difficulty of initiation. The difficulty of initiation. In Damascus, through a window, in a basket, was I let down by the wall and escaped. Now the reference, of course, is to the incident recorded in Acts 9, 22 through 25. Paul had just become a Christian. Before this, he was considered to be the arch-persecutor of the Church of Jesus Christ. He had hailed men and women to prison, caused them to blaspheme. He had done havoc in the church of the Master. Later on, he could look back upon that and said, I was a blasphemer, injurious, and a persecutor. But now something has happened. He's become a child of God, a servant of Christ. And as a young Christian, relatively speaking, with all that tenderness which comes to a man who's just regenerate, he had to bow and taste the same bitter persecution and tribulation that he had been meeting out to others. As Calvin well remarks, this persecution was his first apprenticeship. The poignancy and painfulness of this experience had remained with him down through the years. So he says, if I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. The difficulty of initiation. And some of us can look back and see that the most painful thing we ever did was the first step we took to total yieldedness to Jesus Christ. Our exposure to the total warfare of Satan in the name of the Lord Jesus. When we went out literally on a limb. When we blew up, as it were, all the bridges behind us. And we determined to go through with God. And we're never going to come back again. The biggest step we ever took. But others think differently. And I believe all of this has a message for us. They believe that it was the difficulty of humiliation. In Damascus, through a window in a basket, was I let down by the wall and escaped. Many feel that Paul refers to this incident as one of the most humiliating ordeals. Dr. William Barclay observes the apostle was the kind of man who would find a clandestine exit worse than a scourging. He must have hated with all his great heart to run away like a fugitive in the night. He who never failed to look a mob in the face must have taken this secret escape hardly. To Paul, the bitterest humiliation was not to look his enemies in the face and to adventure his life in facing them. What could be more humiliating than to put 
an oriental rabbi, the great Saul of Tarsus, who sat at the feet of Gamaliel to wrap him up in a little bundle in a tiny basket and let him down the side of a wall. Oh, the humiliation of it. No wonder we exclaim with him, if he must needs glory, he'll glory in the things that concern his infirmities. Oh, the humiliation of that. It haunted him down through the years. Well, I believe there's a message in that. But the last thought to me is the one that has impressed me. It's what I'm calling the difficulty of vilification. In Damascus, through a window in a basket, was I let down by the wall and escaped. There are others, expositors of the word of God, who believe that Paul's enemy had spread a rumor that he had acted in a cowardly fashion when he fled through the night that day, and they hadn't allowed that rumor to die. As Dean Farrar puts it, his base and shameless detractors had evidently insinuated that he was not straightforward that day when he was let down the wall. After all, he's addressing his opponents, who doubtlessly had raised this very incident in order to taunt him and provoke him. And that's why I believe this explanation fits the context. So Paul honestly admits it. Yes, he admits it. Yes, he said, I did. I did. I was wrapped up in a bundle. I was dropped down the wall. I escaped into the night. Yes, I did it. I did it. I remember it. I own up to it. If I must needs glory, I will glory in the things which concern mine infirmities. And beloved, I want to add quickly... It's amazing how one solitary thing can be used by the enemy to threaten our Christian testimony and leadership. Repeatedly, the devil will bring up the issue and with fiendish delight endeavor to torment us throughout the rest of our days. To the apostle, this haunting memory constituted an exceptional difficulty in the pursuance of his ministry. Notwithstanding all this, however, he was steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then, indeed, this was the sign of his apostleship. And to study such a passage of this is forever to be saved from fearfulness and faithlessness in our service for the Lord Jesus Christ. If Paul could pass through difficulties of this kind, cannot we who live in a more enlightened age with a full canon of Scripture before us and 2,000 years of proving that God works mightily through the power of his Holy Spirit some of us can testify to the power of the indwelling Christ, which overcomes not only professional and vocational difficulty, but exceptional difficulty. I recall one of the first occasions on which I delivered a sermon. Halfway through the delivery, I was literally silenced by the devil. In my message, I was testifying to the saving and keeping power of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I was just about to say the next word when a voice seemed to say within my soul, you hypocrite, you hypocrite, how can you ever say that? You know something about your backsliding days before you yielded your life completely and utterly to Jesus Christ. And the experience was so vivid and real that I could not say another word and I handed the meeting over to the chairman and stepped off the platform before a packed church and walked away 
into silence. Months went by before my mouth was opened again. I say months went by before my mouth was opened again and then only after a holy session with God in which every accusation of the devil was finally silenced. But I'm telling you, the memory of that moment continues to humiliate me. To me, this was an exceptional difficulty. And I feel it helps me to understand Paul in this closing verse of this amazing chapter. But as he discovered, so have I, that it's possible to glory in the things which concern our infirmities and to be steadfast in difficulty, always abounding in the work of the Lord. There is such a thing as being steadfast in difficulty. And it's to that that God calls us this morning. Housewives, boys and girls, men and women, in the career world, in the professional world, wherever you are. The devil will challenge you professionally. The devil will challenge you vocationally. The devil will challenge you exceptionally. But whatever that difficulty is, my friend, thank God greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world and in the power of the mighty Son of God through the Holy Ghost, we can triumph. Oh, for leaders to rise and accept that challenge and to go forth undismayed. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.